this is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. NFJC is in the midst of its September pledge drive. Now, if you've never heard of the NFJC September pledge drive, that's because we've never had a September pledge drive before, and who knows if we'll have one again. But up to now, in the first, whatever, eight years that we've been doing this, we've been doing it kind of on a shoestring budget, or a few years ago, we went out and we received and raised money from a bunch of commercial entities. No drug companies, because our bylaws prevent that, but uh, primarily dialysis companies and diagnostic companies. And uh, we believe that NEFJC really should be supported uh, by the people that use NEFJC. And so we're trying to do that this year. We're trying to go to the people that uh, use these resources that we uh, help generate like Freely Filtered and see if we can go to our users and have them support us. And we don't need a lot of money. We run a pretty tight ship, but we're looking for people to give us a hand. There's a, a link in the show notes, or if you just go to nefjc.com, there'll be a link right on that homepage asking you to donate. But for Freely Filtered listeners, we're going to have a special gift for people that donate uh, $200 or more, we're going to have a Yeti uh, freely filtered 20-ounce mug. It looks pretty cool. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. But we're just asking you, you know, if you think this podcast is useful, if it helps your commute to work, uh, why don't you dig deep and make a donation? And if you can't donate $200, that's fine. $25 is the lowest that we're accepting in this round. And if, if you have the means, we're, uh, you can go to nefjc.com and put in a donation for up to $500. Uh, and there's some interesting gifts for these different levels of donation. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and it's sloppy. Like you're the Lancet, you're the highest prestigious journal, and you see this endpoint, and you didn't even care that you broke randomization in the endpoint, and you couldn't give that feedback. Swap. I feel like you missed it. You didn't even call it out. Yes, I missed that too. You guys were all stuck on millimolars, huh? (laughs) (laughs) You can pass that. That's all we can talk about. That was a hard stop. Hell has no fury like a nephrologist scorned by math. Like (laughs) messing up the math is unforgivable. Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be anything like up to date. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Nyan. Hey everyone, my name is Nain Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride. I guess my only disclosure is that I know how to use a calculator, but we'll get to that later. That's about it. Swap. Hey, I'm Swap Nilirimad. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Ottawa. 
um, I am interested in sodium interventions, but I'm not a heart failure doc. And I do know, and I do know how to convert millimoles into milligrams. Oh my God, this is going to be brutal. This is going to be a long podcast. Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. I tweeted Jay Waits. Uh, my only conflict of interest is that we had bratwurst and pickles for dinner tonight. Excellent. Sophie. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical nephrologist and clinician educator at the Denver VA and on faculty at the University of Colorado. I tweet at Sophia underscore kidney and I have no conflicts of interest. Outstanding. So tonight we are doing a heart failure and sodium article. We have brought in a couple of heart failure sharpshooters. I don't want you to confuse them with board certified heart failure specialists. These are Excellent cardiologist that we brought in. We got uh, uh, Dr. Bobek uh, Zian. Dr. Bobek, tell us, uh, introduce yourself, please. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. I'm um, general cardiologist at UCLA and outcomes researcher. And I also work at the VA Greater Los Angeles. I have no no relevant dis- disclosures related to salt. And and your Twitter account is at Bobek. At Bobek, excellent. And returning guest for her third round, uh, Dr. Sadia Khan from Northwestern. Sadia. Hi, I'm Sadia Khan. I'm a cardiologist at Northwestern. I tweet at heartdocsadia. And my only disclosure is that I hate nephrons. (laughs) And yet you still keep asking me to come back. That's why we bring you back. We've got to have a villain. (laughs) And now we know what to put on the back of your jacket. Nice. (laughs) I hate nephrons. Excellent. So we're talking about the sodium HF trial. And so uh, since the beginning of time, general recommendations for heart failure has been a low sodium diet. And uh, increasingly, people have been noticing that we have all these evidence-based guidelines, but this recommendation for low sodium has been thin on evidence. And more concerning is when they've gone deeper and tried to get the evidence and build the evidence So dietary sodium doesn't behave like it's supposed to. And so this is the largest and longest sodium restriction trial in heart failure that has been done. Is that that a fair assessment of the study? Yeah. And it was stopped for futility. (laughs) And it was stopped for futility. God knows what that guideline will be the next time those guidelines get published. It will be interesting. And so we're going to take, we're going to tear this apart. We're going to take a look at the sodium HF trial and go, and go through that. Anybody else have any uh, framing discussions they want to talk about? Most cardiology trials have an acronym that makes up the name. Sodium isn't an acronym, and I think that's right off why this trial failed. No, it is an acronym. It's, in fact, it's a cool one, too. Hold on, I got it right. The Study of Dietary Intervention Under 100 Millimoles in Heart Failure. Yeah, I, so that was actually the best part of this trial. That was the only good part about this trial. Okay, I stand Although corrected. I'm not going to remember the, that. The I thing know. that you're restricting to under the 100 millimoles or whatever number of millimoles it is is not named in the sodium HF acronym. Otherwise, it'd be like auto-referring acronyms that are not a thing. But that's the thing, right? Like the 100 millimoles is wrong. They were going for 65, <laughs> the 100 I think. millimoles is wrong. That's yeah. right. So they, they got it wrong to fit so, the title. Exactly. <laughs> But, but, you know, jokes apart, if, if you look at some of the previous trials uh, and the reason people say, you know, there, this was still, there was equipoise to do this is because there were a bunch of trials that suggested that sodium restriction is harmful. In fact, there is one group which has published a, a trial or two uh, saying that, you know, give them more salt or give them hypertonic saline. And I think they are all from a particular country 
or a particular group. Uh, I don't know if, if in guys, Italy. Oh, in in Italy. It's an Italian group. Yeah, one main investigator has small RCTs, and then had a retraction last year for concern of reusing the same results in another publication that called into question maybe the body of work and appropriateness of his documentation and record keeping. But but it's important to recognize that it's that it's Paterna, right, who who is the main author in these, and that's where we get the hypertonic saline data that I think a lot of us do use. At least we use at our institution a lot. We use a lot of hypertonic saline and acute decompensated heart failure. Uh, that's the same group that published a uh, randomized trial showing that low sodium diets were actually potentially harmful. And how what was that? What did that stock trial look like? Was that a, was it a randomized trial? It was a randomized trial and patients that were given hypertonic saline as inpatients were then discharged on liberal sodium diets versus uh, participants who did not get hypertonic saline were then discharged on low sodium or sodium restricted diets. Don't you think that might be more reflective of actually a more realistic sodium diet that people do at home? And so when they're being discharged, they're being appropriately diuresed at the time of discharge. And so they're going to do better when they go home with a more realistic diet. Exactly. And it's possible. Uh, the, the Even the observational literature, you kind of wonder, because there is some observational data, take it with a grain of salt, because they do seem to suggest that people who have low salt intake do worse. But then again, it's the people who have low salt intake are often those who are probably, you know, close to dying anyways. They are not eating. They are doing very, very poorly. So that's always a concern. If you take a really sick group of patients, how much of a benefit can you demonstrate? Which is kind of the beauty of this trial is that they took people who were, you know, NYHA 2 and 3, which is way earlier. So uh, if people argue that they were not high risk enough, the problem with taking very high risk is perhaps you're too late and, and it may be hard to show a benefit. So a lot of what you're saying gets erased by randomization, right? You're talking about the observational data, always problematic when you look at what they're actually eating. But if you're randomizing patients to two different dietary interventions, I mean, that should negate that problem, presumably. Yeah, yeah. But the, like what, what Bobak pointed out is that there is some concern about the about the data uh, from those Italian trials. Uh, I, I don't know, have in the cardiology field, do people believe those studies or is there like a cloud of doubt around those findings? Yeah, I've never heard of someone using those studies to to implement the practice. I don't talk to enough people probably. I don't know. It's one group's small studies haven't been tried to be reproduced. And then I think it was last year where there's an expression of concern from someone from the group who published a manuscript and then couldn't, you know, validate the source of their data, the underlying data. And then there was clear evidence of duplication and the explanation given for like a copy paste error was not legitimate. So it actually sounded like your garden variety publication fraud. So, and this is on the hypertonic saline data that there, there, this problem was. It was in the subsequent follow-up, uh, which I think was over the course of a few years, actually, that they followed these patients. And as they were saying, there was concern about how they obtained the data and then duplication. And I think they did a systematic review where they counted the same trial. Uh, there are two of their trials and it was like, are these two different trials or perhaps they are the same trial, uh, you know, because the numbers look and the time periods looked strange. Uh, they are, they, it is featured on Retraction Watch. I can, I can add the link to the show notes. Okay, please do that. I was just going to say, it was, the results were kind of too good to be true for the sample size to show an effect. Uh, you'd want to see that reproduced. Yeah, I mean, these Kaplan-Meier curves were like SGLT2 inhibitor Kaplan-Meier curves. They were, they were huge. Nothing can come close to Flozen's. Let's make that clear. 
One of the challenges with trying to isolate out any dietary intervention is that nobody's diet is just one micronutrient or macronutrient. It's not just sodium. And generally, people who eat high-sodium diets also eat a lot of other poor-quality dietary components. And people who have low-sodium diets may be either low-sodium because they are not eating as much or their caloric intake is low. And so that really doesn't get captured when you're trying to identify an intervention to lower sodium intake within the context of somebody's actual diet. I just wanted to ask the two actual cardiologists in the group who are seeing heart failure patients more than us, before this trial came out, how hard were you pushing salt restriction in your patients with heart failure? And did that change based on how severe their heart failure was or just if They've come into the hospital frequently with acute decompensated heart failure, where the trigger is dietary indiscretion, whatever that means. So in, in, in my recommendations, I've always, even when I teach, I've, I've made it a point to say this is something that you've been taught over and over, that this is a risk factor for a precipitating a hospitalization. But if you look at the data, it's not very good. It's not very clear, especially in patients who are maybe on a diuretic, whether salt restriction is helpful. And, and so I've underemphasized it, especially in hospitalized patients. They may have cardiac cachexia and they, and they complain about these low salt diets in the hospital. And so why make them decrease their appetite or not reproduce something that they're maybe having more at home? So uh, I've always sort of de-emphasized salt restriction in my clinical practice. I agree with that. I think the exception are patients who come in more with flash pulmonary edema and hypertensive crisis. And that's where, you know, heart failure is a garbage term, right? Because there's so many different things that lead to a patient having fluid retention that in the composite group of patients with heart failure, it's probably not that helpful. Although granted, in the extremes, if there is significantly high sodium intake, when you have a good sense of what someone's eating, maybe there would be benefit. But I agree, I don't think this is something that we should be harping on because we don't have great data that going really low would be helpful. And even irregardless of the data, this country does not make it easy to be on a low sodium diet. Just the logistics of that and the cost of that is insurmountable for some of our patients. And I think one of the other things that you, you hit on, I think is important is among people that have very high sodium intake, that recommendation may be much more important. This study didn't test that population, right? The people even in the control group had pretty good sodium control. I, I was impressed with how low in general sodium intake was even in the control group here. I wonder how relevant this is to an American population at all. I wonder how relevant it is at all. Maybe we should talk about it before we start trashing it. Yeah, let's, let me better, we better, we better get there. Okay. Nine, right, let's go. Let's, let's start this. What, what, what are we talking about? Sodium HF was a pragmatic, open-label, randomized control trial. This was multinational, so it was 26 sites in six countries. And those countries were Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, Colombia, and Chile. This was adult patients with heart failure, and that was uh, defined as either NYHA class 2 or 3 who were receiving, quote, optimal guideline-directed medical therapy. And the reason I put that in quotes is uh, this started pre-flozins. And so when we get to the table one here in medications, they don't report the use of SGLT2 inhibitors. And I think this probably preceded uh, at least the significant use of SGLT2 inhibitors in this population. When you say you preceded, like the, the 
time of enrollment was immense, right? It went from like 2014 to 2020. Is that, do I have that right? Yep. Started in 2014. I didn't see an explanation for why the hell this took so long. Do we know why the hell this took so long? I mean, I can understand. It's not, these kind of trials are not easy to do. Uh, I mean, of course, cardiologists are used to doing, you know, multi-thousand patient trials. But I guess, you know, enrolling patients to follow dietary interventions may not be easy. The the thing that we'll come to in the results is that the figure one is, you know, it, it's so short that you can't make a sense of how many patients they screened to understand how difficult it was to re- recruit. It's interesting, though, because it was it was a very broad inclusion criteria. That's it. That's the entire inclusion criteria. And and then just to clarify, there's there's no reduced ejection fraction, preserved ejection fraction, restriction none entering the trial, all comers with any kind of heart failure. NYHA class two or, or two or three are, are able to come in. A recent hospitalization was an exclusion. But yeah, the concert diagram doesn't have uh, screened patients. It does not. Swap, I think you were going to say there wasn't an echocardiogram and there wasn't a baseline BNP that was required to be in the study either. So that's like, a, who does a heart failure trial without an echo and a BNP? I think it's problematic because it... <laughs> Well, now we're making fun of everyone in the world, so no one's going to listen to this. But it's problematic to define heart failure without having structural or objective evidence of the disease state. They uh, they said it's pragmatic, so they were trying to be cost effective. But they they say you have to have cl- clinical class two to three heart failure and any heart failure subtype. I don't I don't think they say how many people had an echo, but they give in the results like what the interquartile range was for. LVF based on probably their history. So uh, exclusion criteria. So patients with an average dietary intake of less than 1500 milligrams of sodium, a serum sodium level less than 130 millimoles per liter, anybody with a GFR less than 20 or end-stage kidney disease, uncontrollable thyroid disorders or end-stage cirrhosis. If they had a cardiac device or revascularization procedure in the prior month or planned within the subsequent three months, And then as you guys mentioned, hospitalization due to a cardiovascular cause in the last 30 days, uncontrolled atrial fibrillation, uh, life expectancy less than two years. And then there was this grab bag term of any comorbid condition in which the investigator thought would uh, preclude compliance. So things like dementia, meals on wheels, et cetera, or if they were enrolled in another research study. And then these participants were randomized one-to-one to either usual care or a low sodium diet. And the low sodium diet was defined as less than 1,500 milligrams per day, or what they said was 100 millimoles per day, which is not the right conversion. It should be 65 millimoles per day. Uh, So they got that wrong off the bat. And the intervention group uh, received more intensive dietary counseling, and they got actual uh, meal plans or suggested meal plans. And then the usual group was just given, quote, general dietary Counseling. So they were provided meal plans or were some of them actually provided meals? No meals, just the suggested meal plans. So you have to go to like the design paper, which I always dislike when you're going to publish a paper, at least like put a supplement for what your protocol was. But if you go back and look for the original design paper and then look for the supplement in the original design paper, there is <laughs> there is a, a handout that shows you like how much sodium is in common foods And then they have like six different day menus that they said they adapted for each country where they have dietitians. Like in Colombia, they ate a lot of arepas. So they had to come up with a low sodium arepas recipe. 
So they did try to culturally tailor it, but then the intervention group, you get, <clears throat> you get like a dietitian who, who goes over this with you, talks to you about your habits, and then calls you every month to, or they didn't really say strictly if they did this, but calls you every month to like help you along with, are you doing your plan? And then you have the formal like three, six, nine, 12 month recorded food inventories. And then the, the usual care group basically was told, try to eat less than 2,300 and figure it out on your own. So, you don't, you know, maybe they had some of the same habits, they checked more labels or whatever, but they didn't get that supportive consultation and intermittent sort of encouragement that are you reducing your sodium intake. This kind of comes up similar to like the PREDIMED trials where you got olive oil or walnuts or whatever. And then it was mid-trial that they realized, well, we're giving a lot of support and group therapy to the heart, to the cardiac high-risk patient, but our usual care arm, we weren't. And so we're going to do that, but ignore the, you know, it was like a mid-change. You know, you want things to be blinded if you're randomizing and it may not just be the dietary changes you're doing. You're also providing a, a whole different level of support and monitoring. I mean, what it really seems like they did here is they were comparing the intervention rather than the, the salt intake. And it's an incredibly motivated group of people. Yeah, the real trial was dietary counseling. It wasn't you know, strict sodium intake. Babak, since you seem to have read the previous work on this trial, uh, which I have not, did they ever do 24-hour urines? Did they know that that pilot trial, they ne there's no validity to this intervention in terms of lower sodium. I highlighted this somewhere in their methods where they, sh they, claim, they claim citations and examples. Other people, I guess, do this. A standardized three-day recall, weekend recall of what you ate and correlate that with how much sodium you were having in your intake. But they say that the reason you can't do this in the heart failure population with 24-hour urines is because they're on diuretics and that's going to throw off your 24-hour yeah, urine. That was an excuse it given. That, that's fiction. And, and, the, and the answer, Bubek, is that no nephrologist would accept a trial that doesn't have a 24-hour urine or at least a first morning urine. Like it's just That's just what we're used to seeing. First morning urines are not that expensive. They're easy to do. Those have good correlates to 24-hour urines. That's what we expect to see. And in fact, all the big sodium trials have used first morning urine sodiums. You know, And there are people argue about the validity of that, but that's kind of become table stakes for this category of study in the nephrology literature, at least. So they give Pearson correlations for these food inventory surveys, and it's like 0.6. Oh, three years. It didn't see 606. It wasn't like that high. So I wasn't, I was surprised that that's acceptable as seen as a standard. And you would think maybe the people that you've been counseling so much about not eating too much salt, when they get their surveys, they're going to be like, oh yeah, I wasn't eating as much <laughs> of that stuff. You told me they got guilt tripped. So the intervention is going to bias your, your assessment. They're like, you're going to hold me accountable in three months and be like, how much did I eat? And yeah, I didn't eat as many saltier repas. Yeah. And since I paid attention, I know exactly how to answer to get the low sodium output you're looking for. Do you think that's why the blood pressure wasn't that different, even though the reported sodium was? Yeah. And it, and it dipped a little bit at like three months or something, but then was unchanged for the course of the year. Which is actually pretty consistent with dietary intervention trials, right? The first three months, you get people to do what you're asking them to, and then they rebound back to whatever they were doing. And, and you could argue that the, again, I'm not defending them because they're Canadian. I completely, you know, I agree with Bobak's assessment of the fact that, you know, this is not, the correlations may have come from some cross-sectional study. 
where you know you can say there's a good correlation but in an interventional trial where it's an open label there is going to be uh, an incentive for one group to you know not necessarily be completely truthful having said that uh, that's this the most not... canadian way of saying <laughs> lie right that's what we use with our kids <laughs> You're not being completely truthful here. <laughs> the kid from Detroit's like he's lying. <laughs> uh, but but you know again the the pragmatic the pragmatic aspect of this is that uh, you know unlike PrediMed where they could give olive oil and you know I think they gave a liter of olive oil per day or some some crazy amount right like hundreds of liters of olive oil uh, and walnuts and pistachios and what have you or in the dash trial where they couldn't afford to give it for a year so they gave it only for four weeks where you know people got packaged breakfast and and they ate the breakfast and the lunch on site and they gave a packaged uh, dinner you can't do that in in real life with your patients what's the best that you can do uh, right now what most of us do is we tell them hey eat less salt you know read the labels and we walk away uh, but perhaps what we could do is add a dietitian layer of counseling uh, so let's test that kind of an intervention and if that fails then you know it's there's no point in having a dietitian talk to your patients if if that's not going to achieve any outcomes uh, so from that aspect it was totally pragmatic it was an effectiveness trial it was not an efficacy but they didn't even measure what the effect of the dietitian was right that's the, that's the biggest problem is that the validity the internal validity of the study were all like ah and I'm by it right but they measured the outcome right right they measured they the outcome measure and the you can outcome. argue that uh, we we don't know we know that the again we are jumping ahead but we know from this that the perhaps the counseling didn't work but we don't know why it didn't work and did it not work because sodium restriction doesn't work or did it not work well, because well but it, no but the problem it didn't is, is the that sodium. they measured the amount of sodium these people were eating and they claimed that there was this 25% reduction in sodium intake and then there was no change in outcomes and we're like ah we're not buying the 25% right. reduction in sodium intake because of the way they measure that this 3 day recall and the, and the fluid they had fluid uh, diary right they had like 1789 ml of fluid uh, again i mean they had that down to the cc like that's impossible yeah. it was impossible and it was a low event rate in this study too so I, i don't know if it was just a bunch of healthy heart failure patients but that that might be an oxymoron <laughs> sorry the reason the real reason they didn't lower the blood pressure is there was no increase in the potassium intake and we all know that is the secret to blood pressure control <laughs> Lower the sodium and jack up the potassium. Although their blood pressure wasn't that bad. That would have been yeah. a better study. <laughs> We should sub- substitute the salt that people normally eat. Salt substitution. Eat. Do we know how much diuretic they were on? No. They did not. They didn't let us know that. Did people's diuretic dose change? Nothing. We have no info. They weren't on diuretics? One would assume that some of What them were on diuretics. What kind of diuretic was it? I'm going to keep asking. Probably not a lot of SGLT2 inhibitors. <laughs> Do you think what it was it? a different kind of diuretic? <laughs> we know, wait, wait. We know that 60% of them were on mineral corticoid receptor antagonists and I'm aware that those are diuretics. I don't know. Do you think they were on optimal GDMT? <laughs> Flozens aside, were they even on you know, was this representative of heart failure patients? Well, well this depends the on if they're a, reduced or preserved EF, right? Like you don't know how many are of the reduced EF folks are on all th- then three, now four pillars of therapy. And for preserved folks, there was probably nothing at that point. And now SGLT2 inhibitors. 
Um, so it's hard to really mineral say. Mineralocorticoid right? receptor. Sorry, mineralocorticoid receptor and SGLT2 inhibitor. Thank you. I don't know. To me, it looks pretty good. They got 80% of patients on RAS inhibition, which includes ACE Arbor Army. That's pretty good. And then another 80 or almost 90% on beta blocker. And then uh, and then 60 to 50%, 60, 50 to 60% on MRAs. I mean, that sounds pretty good. It's actually pretty consistent with DAPA-HF. Like these are the same proportions on these meds. It, it's just interesting because I think they call out in the methods on optimally tolerated GDMT, but it's still lower than we'd like, but probably higher than most patients if you look at CHAMP HF or other registry data in the US. That is why I put it in quotes. Optimal was in quotes. And there's no run-in period here where you're trying to optimize the medicine regimen before you do a dietary intervention, right? Like we're just accepting that these folks are on four medicines, they must be at the best doses of those medicines. I pragmatically up titrate doses when I see people. Although, was there a run-in? Because essentially, when you ask someone to come into this intensive study, wasn't that the run-in? Because most people ran for the hills. It would seem like we should have a box of how many people (laughs) ran for the hills and how many didn't. But I think we don't have that box in figure one. There's a run in and then there's a run for the hills. Yeah, that's oftentimes <laughs> listed in the, uh, it's probably the supplement. I don't, I don't know, the run for it the hills It should be number. the first part of the consort diagram, right? The run it for the hills be. part. The run for the hills group. Okay, <laughs> methods nine. Can you give me some more methods? Where are we? There's outcome. So this was a 12-month intervention with a 24-month follow-up. And there was clinic visits at six months and 12 months. If you were the intervention group, you had additional clinic visits at three and nine months. And then as Bobak mentioned, there were monthly phone calls with a dietitian only if you were in the intervention group. And as we've talked about multiple times, the dietary sodium was assessed with a three-day food diary, which included one weekend day. So if that makes you feel better about their sodium intake, then more power to you. The primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular-related hospitalizations, cardiovascular-related ER visits, and all-cause mortality within 12 months. And there was a number of secondary endpoints or outcomes, which was time to first event, uh, quality of life assessments based on this Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire, change in a six-minute walk test, and change in NYHA class. And those were both from baseline to 12 months. So, so is, this, is this like the most well commonly used uh, survey tool and heart failure, life measure. The, the KCCQ? Can you, can you tell us what it means? Like, you know, we are, this is just a bunch of numbers to us nephrons. We're lowly nephrologists. We don't know what that means. I know. When I first read it, they're like, if it's increased, I'm like, is increase good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a commonly used tool developed by John Spiritus. Uh, he's, as a fellow, you know, he gave us the Seattle Angina score and is an expert in developing these quality of life questionnaires. If you look at the questions, they're what you might expect to ask a heart failure patient in terms of their symptoms or change in symptoms. And so what he's done is validated the score by correlating it with outcomes and risk. And they've sort of set these minimal differences that might be meaningful clinically. And it's, it's within the guidelines now as something that should be measured in clinical care to think about evaluating your patients at baseline and seeing if they're improving with to go alongside of their medical therapy. But yeah, he's sort of cornered the market on a standardized instrument used in research. Bobak, did you did you just Google that? Or did you know that offhand? 
<laughs> I knew that. <laughs> it's a podcast. You'll never know. Oh, my God. <laughs> did we actually get experts this time? How did that happen? <laughs> I, I Googled it. Um, so that, that's why I'm a returning, I guess. I was going to um, Google how I many think... questions it is. I think it's like 29. Or there's a full and a short. And, and so uh, so every symptom gets a point. So the higher it is, the worse it is. Or? Yeah, he also has the shorter ones that are like twelve. But the full the full one is probably. And then if you do use it in your study and you don't pay for it, you get you get sued. So be careful. Mm. Oh. All right. Did we get permission before we <laughs> set it on air? Yeah. What about if we talk about it in our podcast? You're okay. You're okay. I'm just kidding. Um, but more broadly, I think the KCCQ aside, the idea of patient-centeredness and patient-reported outcomes as being important in interventions, I think is really great that this was measured here. Whether or not this is the right tool, what the right benchmark is, whether or not a five-point difference is clinically meaningful, I think those are questions that are separate to answer. But understanding how patients feel and their quality of life for any intervention, particularly one as intensive as this one, I think is really important. What about the six-minute walk test? I, I'm always dodging the patients with pulmonary hypertension outside our clinic doing this, but I, I didn't know it was used commonly in, in patients with heart failure. Yeah, so it's great in studies. At UCLA, we use it commonly, especially for our advanced heart failure patients that might be headed towards referral for advanced therapies. And at the VA, it's not going to change any too much of our clinical decisions regularly, so we tend not to do that. Uh, I think in general, you know, the more objective measure would be a cardio cardiopulmonary exercise test, and that's going to be probably higher fidelity. I think of it as a poor man's CPAP. In patients that are sick enough, you get enough of a distinction of how far people can walk in six minutes that you can kind of get a sense of are they heading in the wrong direction or not. So why choose this for a majority of patients who are class two New York Heart Association? It's fine. It's appropriate. You can... But do you, are you going to see the distinction? I think we made a comment earlier. There's no such thing as a healthy heart failure patient. So the fact that these are older patients with heart failure, even class two, they're, I think, still in that group where we're probably going to see a nice range from the six-minute walk test. You know, from a study design perspective, it's probably more of, it might be more efficient to assess quality of life because it's a continuous measure. It's a standardized scale. Uh, hospitalizations or random heart events. And, you know, they didn't really go into how well they were able to capture what process they went through to adjudicate or make sure that they could capture, you know, outside hospitalizations, or was it just based on patient interviews or how they did that? It wasn't really specified, but a standardized quality of life metric might be more responsive and might be, might be more patient-centric. So people have advocated for routine use of it. I haven't seen it power like a primary outcome, but it's a good secondary outcome to include in your study. As it was here. Secondary outcome here. Well, we didn't get into the details of the methods, but they didn't analyze it appropriately. Oh, snap. We're going to hear more. Yeah. Uh, boy, that sounds interesting. Why don't you tell us more about how they didn't analyze it correctly? <laughs> well, the whole principle of randomization is that you want to look at the difference in your outcome between randomized arms. So if you look at figure 4A, what they report is change in baseline for usual care and low sodium, and then also for the intervention. 
So that's a statistical no-no that unfortunately the Lancet reviewers weren't mindful of. And also the authors of this study in their design paper don't mention how they will analyze KCCQ, but the whole point of randomization is for you to look at the two arms compared to each other, not to compare one arm to itself within itself, because now you've disregarded all that effort you went through to randomize. So this is a no-no. Uh, this was an issue in the ischemia trial, if you're interested in cardiovascular trials, where the appropriate statistical analysis was not done. So it would be better to discuss the difference in the KCCQ that would get you, at least you're staying consistent with your randomization paradigm, but even better would be to adjust for baseline KCCQ uh, using an ANCOVA type analysis with the, the endpoint of the time period you're looking at. So basically these p-values are meaningless because you're, it's looking at like, it's like an observational study, you know, maybe people when you Twin put them in observational study, trials. Yeah. It's like Frank Harrell talks about it all the time. Yeah. And it's sloppy. Like you're the Lancet, you're the highest, you know, prestigious journal and you see this endpoint and you didn't even care that you broke randomization in the endpoint and you couldn't give that feedback, but we all know how pure. And I can't believe I missed so. that swap. I feel like you missed it. You didn't even call it out. I, I, Yes, I missed that too. You That's guys true. were all stuck on millimolars, huh? <laughs> you can't get past that. That's all we can talk about. We're like, that was a hard stop. Yes. Hell has no fury like a nephrologist scorned by math. Like, messing with the math is unforgivable. But this is getting worse and worse for Joel, who said this was a good study before we started recording. I know that. And I was hoping that no one would remind me that on the recording and so that I could switch parties and no one would know the wiser. And you're not editing this one so we can hold you yeah. to it this time. You don't get to look so smart. As a, as a Bayesian, you should never assume a study is good. You should always assume it's horrible. When did I become a Bayesian? I'm a Jew. <laughs> 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 okay, so the the next thing is they they assumed an event rate of twenty five percent in the usual care group, uh, so estimated a, a sample size of nine hundred and ninety two patients uh, to have an eighty percent power to detect a thirty percent uh, reduction in the primary outcome. However, there was a independent or there was a data review committee who looked at the uh, twelve month results for the first five hundred patients and advised discontinuation of the trial due to futility. And they also mentioned that there was some issues uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of uh, recruiting patients. So, so it was actually discontinued early. So it is an underpowered study in the end. I have a question. If they assumed a 30% event reduction, were they putting flozins in the low-sodium diet? Uh, they probably would have mentioned that in the methods. I didn't see that. So I don't think so. It was in the supplement. I thought the recruitment was pretty good. They got to 841 patients and they pre-specified like 900, was it 992. Yeah, they really yeah. were pretty close. Over six years. Are, are there circumstances in development of a trial if your event rate is lower than you anticipated that you can extend the trial and enroll more people to allow it to be powered adequately? Or is that just not a thing that's, that's cool in terms of trial design? Josh, you're, 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 you're dis rediscovering the idea of an adaptive trial. 
I rediscover lots of things. Unfortunately, they're not publishable, but I'm, I'm still working on it. The whole rule with the clinical trial is you have to pre-specify what you're doing. So apparently they said they had a, a futility rule built into the interim analysis. I didn't double check. When you go to clinicaltrials.gov, they don't have a detailed list. And I think they refer to the manuscripts. And I don't remember seeing a stopping rule. With an adaptive trial on your interim analysis, if you're in the cone of potentially finding, a, say, a statistically significant finding, you can pre-specify that I will recruit another 200 patients because we're so close. It, why, why abandon it with a confidence interval that's just barely going to miss? And so in an adapt adaptive trial, you can pre-specify your sample size and talk about either maybe stopping the trial with a third of the recruitment left for futility. Or if you're you know, two-thirds done and you're about to hit significance, you might want to recruit some additional to push you over the edge. And there's equations people use to estimate. And that adaptive trial design and math, that was all available in the early 2010s when this trial was designed, or that was less common then than now? All this is known. All of this has been known for like decades that statisticians have told people how to make their trials more efficient and they continue to publish the same style. So another way to boost power is to adjust for a few baseline factors that you think are associated with your outcome. So, you know, if you think heart failure hospitalizations are related to age, if you just pre-specify that you would adjust the treatment effect for age or NYHA class or LVF or something, you know, that you think is associated with hospitalizations, that's going to probably give you a 10 to 50, you know, 10 to 20% power boost to see a signal. And that's underdone in modern day clinical trials. And, and we, we, in fact, discussed adaptive and pragmatic trials on Left Madness about four or five years ago. Uh, it's, it's become a little bit more popular these days, but people are still distrustful, right? It's like, oh, you're going to change the sample size midway to the trial. And it's like eyebrows are raised. Uh, we kind of have to, you know, trust. Uh, and this is all, of course, to be pre-specified. You, yeah, I mean, no you cannot no not one, specify and change it halfway through. No one raises an eyebrow when the trial stopped early for efficacy. Uh, so it seems like we probably shouldn't raise an eyebrow if the trial is expanded early under pre-specified guidelines because, we, like, like Babak had said, like, we might be so close. But should we raise an eyebrow if it's discontinued for futility? I mean, it means the grant they wrote and, you know... It didn't have the potential they thought, and, and, and so you don't actually get much information out of it uh, other than maybe the trouble they went through with recruitment and follow-up, and, and so it might give you some ideas for improving upon this design, but it doesn't really give no, you much I, to take I, away. I, no, I, you can't do that to patients. If you guys know that you guys are not going to be able to show that this thing is, is efficacious and you no longer have equipoise, there's another party here that's involved, and that's... If you know that this drug is this trial is, is futile, you no longer have equipoise and you shouldn't be in randomizing patients. You shouldn't be in, enrolling patients. But on the other end of things, was it reasonable to estimate a 30% event reduction? That's huge. Yeah. You write your power calculation based on the funding available and the patient size you can manage. <laughs> yeah, you find a statistician who will give you the right sample size for the grant. Yes. Sophia, tell us, what did we discover about salt restriction? 
Okay, I'm just going to remind everybody, 800 and pa 806 patients were enrolled and randomly assigned. And this was through that time frame of March 2014 through December of 2020. And 397, so almost 400, were randomized to the low-sodium diet and 409 to the usual care. So from a characteristic perspective, they were reasonably evenly matched. The median age was 67 years, 33% women, 66% men. There is surprisingly no data on race or ethnicity. It was specifically not collected. They said that in the methods, we are not going to collect this. It seemed like a conscious decision that they didn't want to know this. I've not seen that in a study before. Is, that, is this going to be a trend? Is this new or is this just them? In European studies, you often don't see that because I think either they're not allowed to or, or some such thing. I've, I've seen that occasionally in European. I don't know, like a bunch of but these this patients were Canadian. This is Mexico, Chile, yeah. New Zealand, Canada, Canada. Yeah. Australia. Australia. Yeah. But the authors well, use S and randomized. So sounds European to me, maybe Australian. Maybe that's Lancet, yeah. And then I, I know most folks here are doctors in the US or Canada. In At least when I was training in, in US, treatment of heart failure, um, hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate in patients of recent African origin is, is like a thing that it was at least a reasonable part of GDMT. Is that not a thing that we do anymore? It seems like that would be relevant to think about race or ethnicity in that context here. Yeah, it's class one in our guide, recent guidelines, 2022, still there. So half trial. Moving what, on. What diuretics were they on? I don't know. Are you just oh, trying to bring know. this up again? You're just like, you <laughs> just want to make this clear. We don't know. But do we know Wait. the dose of the diuretic? No, we do not know the dose of diuretics. <laughs> but like how many were on Lasix and how many, sorry, on furosemide and how many were on metalazone? And or... what was their ejection fraction? We don't know that either. Were anyone on thiazide diuretics? <laughs> we, no, the ejection fraction average was 36. What Median ejection fraction was 36%. The median BNP is pretty low. Yeah, like 170 or something like that. You told me there's no such thing as a healthy heart failure patient, so. 192.20. But BNP doesn't mean whether or not someone is healthy. And that actually <laughs> is relevant depending on what the breakdown for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction is. And we all know the lessons that we learned from the TopCat trial where there were patients enrolled in the study that didn't even have heart failure. That BNP just reflects the excellent diuretic dosing that was being given. Or they're amazingly low sodium at baseline, sodium intake at baseline. All right. According to, according to their three-day diary. Which included a weekend. <laughs> One day. One day a weekend. My sodium intake is also very low when I report it with a three-day diary. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put the potato chips away now. <laughs> yeah, you don't count potato chips. Come on. Oh, my god! I haven't heard any bag crinkling. Okay. Uh, where was I? So 86% had heart failure for at least one year and 33% were admitted due to heart failure in the past year. We briefly discussed the mean ejection fraction was 36%. Depending on whether it was a slow, low sodium group versus the usual care, the majority of them had NYHA functional class 2 that was 74% for the low-sodium diet group and 69% for the usual care. And then 25 to 29% for class 3. Uh, you guys mentioned uh, baseline 
systolic blood pressure. I didn't find that. Maybe that was hiding in the supplement. So I don't know if I missed it's that. It's in the supplement. It was like 118. It's at the it's bottom. In, of it's in the table figure, one. figure, figure two. Oh, it's also at the bottom of table one. Systolic second from the bottom. Oh, yeah, line there it is. There. 118 in both groups. All right. At randomization, 81% were on ACE, ARB, or ARNI. So our Secubitrol sort of Valsartan group. 87% on a beta blocker, 57% on a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. There's your diuretic. That's one of them. But I'm what was sure the dose? if they were on other diuretics, it would be listed. They just <laughs> must not be. Okay. All right. So the baseline median sodium intake was 2,286 milligrams per day for low sodium, 2,119 milligrams per day for usual care. And how much is that in millimoles? That's about 100. So at 12 months, the median sodium intake was 1,658 milligrams per day for the low sodium group, which was a 28% decrease, and 2,073 milligrams per day for the usual care group, which is approximately 4% decrease. The median difference between the groups was a mere 450 milligrams per day at 12 months, but still considered significant at a p-value of less than 0.0001. Uh, there was no difference, significant difference in body weight, systolic blood pressures, except for that dip that was seen in about six months, calorie intake, fluid intake, or potassium intake. I, I mean, you kind of wonder uh, that it, was it, is it worthwhile looking at those meal plans? Because I'm sure that when you design a diet which is lower in sodium, it's often higher in potassium, right? Because you substitute healthier options. So the fact that their food diary didn't capture that, again, makes me suspicious about the validity of the food diary. Uh, you know, people who are eating healthy will often eat more potassium because there's more fruits and vegetables instead of, you know, whatever junk they were eating before. And as I think Sadia pointed out, the blood pressure drops at three months and then it bounces up. Uh, but also there's no change in weight at all, right? If someone's eating less sodium, volume is the big issue. So they should be losing some weight, but there is no weight loss at all. But that's because their diuretic was adjusted. Right. They're still being followed by their cardiologist. And their cardiologist is still doing a good job. Exactly. Okay. Getting to our primary outcome. As a reminder, it was a composite of cardiovascular-related hospitalization, cardiovascular-related ER visits, and uh, all-cause mortality within 12 months of randomization. And it was 15% in the low-sodium group and 17% in the usual care, so no significant difference. In the secondary endpoints of all-cause death, cardiovascular-related hospitalization, cardiovascular-related emergency ER visits, when they were looked at separately, there was no difference. Looking at the quality of life scores, so clinical summary, physical limitation, this was with the KCCQ. It was better in the low sodium group versus the usual care, of course. These are subjective outcomes. There was no difference seen in the six-minute walk distance between the groups. And then finally, there was a significant difference in looking at the NYHA functional class at 12 months. But they did mention that the low-sodium diet group had a greater likelihood of improving um, on the class than the usual care group. Again, the functional class NYHA is still considered a subjective parameter. It's not objective data. So in an unblinded randomized controlled trial, it's definitely at risk of having some bias. Yeah, and I'd say all all the secondary outcomes, they're analyzed versus baseline within each arm. So you can't actually see the degree of difference 
uh, numerically, but for the KCCQ, it's the difference is probably no no is less than five, so it's not clinically meaningful. And and is it possible that uh, it was an open label? Sorry, uh, and maybe that influenced the people who are asking answering the questionnaire. They knew they were part of the intervention, so they thought, "Hey, I have to feel better. You know, I'm eating less salt according to the food diary that I'm claiming to be maintaining." But does it matter why people feel better as long as they feel better? But joking aside, the numbers in the supplement for the KCCQ do have some validity. We see differences between men and women, so we know that. In general, women with heart failure have worse quality of life, and you see that. But I think to Babak's point, the change is pretty small. We're seeing percentage significant differences between groups. But if you look at the absolute change, it's pretty small over the course of the intervention. But again, isn't that to be expected? There wasn't much change. The difference between the two groups wasn't there. So if you intensively counsel somebody and provide them dietary support, the trial answered the question, did that change outcomes? It was a big it was a bigger sodium difference than the SAS trial, which showed a big difference. Oh, a lot bigger. The self-reported sodium intake was dramatically lower. 24% decrease in sodium intake? That's pretty dramatic. I mean, let's put it this way. If you went on a diet, you had 24% less calories, you'd probably lose weight, right? <laughs> Again, going back to the same question, do we think this trial is negative because this counseling doesn't work in reducing sodium intake? Or is it negative because despite a 24% reduction in sodium intake? Reported you know, no, sodium intake. Yeah, the sodium intake doesn't matter in heart failure, right? Because you've got diuretics. So who cares if people eat less salt? Just give them chlorothalidone and it flows in. Maybe that's what matters. Again, it's a wrong population. They already had low sodium intake at baseline. I have trouble accepting that people can have such a profound change with counseling uh, without some more objective measure of consumption. So I, I have a hard time believing they achieved market reductions compared to the control arm for the course of a year. I try to eat healthy for like a, a week and it doesn't last that long. <laughs> Yeah, I I was doing really well until the weekend and I had like pizza all day on Saturday. Yesterday I had cheese and crackers and then I had barbecue chicken and then I had a little bit of wine. Sophie, and- this is not your three-day diet. And Sophie, they only had one day of weekend scored in their in their three day in their three day board. You didn't no, even give a Saturday. So Sunday would have been enough. <laughs> Did, did you guys already have a show? You guys did a podcast on the SAS study? Or yeah. How, how did that yeah. go? We Better than this one. Much more <laughs> upbeat than this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're believers in potassium. So do you, are we ready for a, a salt substitute heart failure study? You think we can? Well, the problem in the United States is uh, is we don't get our salt from the, the salt shakers. The source of processed salt. food. Yeah, the source of salt doesn't – it's not, not very helpful for this country. And then the use of potassium sparing agents, right? If you were on a potassium sparing agent, you were not able to be enrolled in SAS, and at least half of the people here are. Um, so I think you're that talking would be about a, in the study, not us, right? That's correct. And, and I think, but I, I mean, but I personally that. speak for yourself. <laughs> no, we, we don't, don't know, know the diuretic dose or the diuretics. Sadia <laughs> is really focused on this. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting in the sense that you're concerned about the lack of disclosure about the diuretic. <laughs> well, it's just surprising to think about a study of heart failure patients and not having a sense of their diuretic regimen. 
and you know, a th- I think a third were in the hospital in the past 12 months. So that means two thirds weren't in the past year. So do we know they have heart failure? We're going to, why don't we ask a heart failure doctor? What do you think, Sadia? I think it was a really hard study to do, right? You know, we've been bashing it all night, but taking a step back, trying to study something as difficult as a dietary intervention to lower sodium in patients with heart failure is really challenging. The sick patients end up in the hospital all the time. So you have to find people that are not so sick, but yet also have heart failure and will are willing to enroll in a study like this. I think the problem is that cutting salt is the most common dietary advice that's given to these patients. And I'm not sure that in the age of good guideline-directed medical therapy where we have lots of options for medications and we can just give people a little diuretic, does this actually matter? And I think so much time and you know resources get put into talking to patients about low salt and then patients come to the hospital and every time they come in, it gets blamed on, oh, they had you know too much salt at home and now they're in the hospital. And I, I, I'm not convinced that that's true. And I don't know if you guys feel patients that way. Patients believe it. Patients will tell you, oh, I had too much salt and then that's why I'm here. Exactly right. Yeah, but but going back to uh, Nayan's point, I do agree that, you know, uh, uh, and what Sadia said about the fact that, you know, we have been bashing this study, but I, I'm happy to take the take-home message saying that dietary counseling is a waste of time. Let's stop doing it. Uh, whether it works or whether it reduces heart failure, if they reduce their sodium intake, in truth, we don't know that. But what we do know is that dietary counseling does not improve outcomes. Well, it's a waste of time if your baseline sodium intake is two grams. If it's well, we don't know seven that, grams, we don't know, so, we don't so know so that. So do the, do the trial no with seven grams. Then do the trial before, with seven grams. Before saying, That's right. Yeah, we, they we did that, that trial. They did a trial in, uh, in I think, five grams versus you know uh, 1.6 grams or something like that, and they showed no difference. I mean, it was 15 patients, but you know, it showed no, no, no difference. Were they looking for a 30% change in mortality or failure emissions? I guess I, I would be careful not to say dietary counseling is a waste of time. I, I think that's a little too broad a statement. So if we walk that back a little bit, in this patient population where the sodium intake by three-day dietary recall is already relatively low, there wasn't much added benefit. That's a better way to put that. That's nice. That's like Swap saying that you're being not truthful instead of being a liar. See, I can pretend to be Canadian. <laughs> you're very close. Uh, but, you know, you've got, you've got 15 minutes or half an hour with a patient. How much effort are you going to put in counseling versus, you know, making sure that their flows in is covered and, their, you know, the MRA convincing them it's worthwhile to take. You know, the time is now. Give them four drugs at once, right? Is that, do you want to spend time convincing them that these medications are really essential or talk about, you know, their chips and uh, the things that they enjoy. Uh, if we have a limited amount of time and resources, why don't we focus on the interventions we know that. But the interventions that we know that work, like it, it, it these are interventions that are expensive that are drug company sponsored. Like we don't have, we have, we don't have the rigorous data for the things that are not drug based. And that's always the argument, right? That we don't spend the money and the time and the energy on these interventions that are not pharmaceutical in nature. And maybe it's not dietary. Maybe it's physical activity. Rehab HF was, a, I think, a great study that demonstrated a non-pharmaceutical intervention could have benefit. It's a different population that was a sick, hospitalized population, but perhaps it's what the intervention is. Okay. Is there any last bashing that needs to be done on this trial? Have we 
wrung all the life out of it. Is there any glimmer of information that we have left on the table? Have we decongested it adequately with diuretics here for this trial? That's the question you're asking, Joel. Any interest in seeing, um, instead of uh, intention to treat, uh, kind of just uh, what What about the patients had the biggest drop in sodium intake? Do they get a better outcomes? No, they, they, they did that kind of an analysis post-talk and they didn't see anything. They still didn't see anything. The, the two other things they looked at was um, primary outcome and baseline dietary sodium intake, and then primary outcome and baseline RAS inhibition use, and there was no association that was aber- observed there. I think there was a borderline interaction that was seen based on age, and if they were less than 65, they may have had a greater reduction in the primary outcome. So, so it, it, there is no analysis by achieved sodium intake, sorry. It's based on baseline sodium intake. And it's not by achieved, there. right. Yeah, okay. it's not by achieved, yeah. Okay, and the, and the RAS thing is because the whole thought is that reducing salt intake too much reduces chloride delivery, increases neurohumoral activation, and so that might be mitigated by RAS inhibitors. Uh, there was a minority of patients in this that that were not on RAS inhibitors in this case. I'm just going to throw a lifeline out there about three-day dietary recall. Some of the best observational epi studies are based on dietary recall. So there are a lot of challenges and limitations when used in a pragmatic open-label trial, but it's not unreasonable. Aren't the best Nutra-Epi studies actually the worst? I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any good nutritional epidemiology studies? All right. It's like a healthy heart failure patient. I tried. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Wow. It's a tough crowd tonight. Okay. So. I think think the unfortunate take home is people are going to be like, oh, they tried low salt and it doesn't work. And it's the study really doesn't add information where you can make that judgment, I think, because there's so much uncertainty around the design and the validity of the intervention that I think you got, you know, without the urinary sodium, you're not really seeing, you need to really know the difference in, in what you're doing. And, and you know, I, th- I think cardiologists for decades have been asking that we need a sodium study and we, this should be a priority because there's all this old guidance, but we don't actually have good information. And I think it's challenging to think about how do you how could you do this? I, but here, I guess what I would say about that is it's not, this is not showing so much that the low sodium intake doesn't do anything. This is showing that the intensive dietary counseling, which is the only way that you could ever have, you could ever actualize this, you know, short of, oh, you found that one very motivated patient who really is going to change, turn their life around and really lower their do- sodium diet. I guess that does happen. But the, as a general intervention, hey, we're going to throw all these dietitians, we're going to give them meal plans, we're going to do all of this, and does it move the needle? No. Not in patients who already have a reported low sodium intake. In the people who you think are being reasonable, does further dietary intervention telling them to stop eating a reasonable amount of salt, even less, is that helpful? And the answer is no. But we don't know much more than that from here. So here it is, you know, design, what is your dream RCT in this population? You know, I, again, I have problems with the intervention. I agree, this is not a good intervention, but the SAS group did a really smart intervention, which we said cannot be done in heart failure. So yes, you know, uh, Josh and Sophia would like to have a higher sodium intake heart failure population, but then still it goes back to what will your intervention be? Counseling is unlikely to be used. How would you, you know, reduce sodium intake? Does it surprise anyone that I, I, you know, I think you, you need to you need to have a prison full of heart failure patients that you can just randomize <laughs> just like their the, diets, just like the high right? fat study. Yeah, 
I randomized them to a cardiologist like me. It was like, well, go ahead, eat whatever salty food you want. We'll adjust your diuretic as needed. Just be consistent. Okay. We're down to uh, uh, tubular secretion swap. Lead us off. What, what kind of tubular secretion do you have this week? So to- again, on the sodium topic, uh, the American Heart Association hypertension sessions is coming up in September. It's going to be in San Diego, uh, September 6th, 7th, and 8th, I think. So please make sure uh, you come there physically. There is no online option. On day one, there is a debate uh, where uh, this this nephrologist from Ottawa called Swapnil Hiramat will be debating Stephen Jurashek from uh, Beth Israel, I think, uh, uh, from Boston. Uh, and uh, Stephen is going to say sodium restriction is fantastic. And Swap is going to say it's a waste of time. Swap, what's in it for us? <laughs> Potato chips. For, <laughs> <laughs> Potato chips. You're doing that for for hypertension? Uh, for for hypertension, yes. Not for not for heart failure. Uh, but it's, it's actually, I've, I'm overstating it. I'm going to say potassium is what matters and not sodium. And he's oh, saying sodium is what matters. No, that okay. makes more sense. Yes. And I'll, I'll say chloride uh, okay. also matters. Okay. Josh, you got, you got tubular secretion? Sure. I want to do nothing professional, nothing nephrology related at all. Uh, a week ago, we got a new car and it has been fantastic. Uh, this is the first electric car I've ever had. We have an electric Mini Cooper. Um, it is so zippy and fun to drive and so quiet. We had a Mini Cooper before my son was born. And then once it got to be too hard to load a baby seat into the backseat of a two-door car, we had to give it up. And now I totally get why middle-aged men like me go and get fun, youthful, zippy cars. Like It's it's just great. The electric, the electric Mini is a two-door too, right? It's a two-door car, but now he can walk himself into the back seat. I don't have to physically lift him over a seat to get him into the back. I do hear they are very zippy, though. They are very zippy. They are wonderful to drive. They are terrible to be the passenger in, or so my wife tells me. I've also heard that if you're driving up to Breckenridge from Denver, you have to stop to get charged on the way. Yeah, (laughs) the range is not ideal. That's totally fair. Um, but if you have a setup for charging at home, I, anyway, I'm not here to endorse the Mini Cooper. I think the electric car thing is super exciting. And I'm watching this like Senate bill that could really get people into electric cars onto the roads and get excited. I think that would be a really great change for, for the country. So I know, I know we're not a political podcast. We are a, yeah, for the world too. So we're not a political podcast. We're a nephrology podcast, but I just think this is like a good for the world and can be fun for you kind of intervention. It's not like Taylor Swift who trumps everybody in the carbon emissions. In the short uh, plane flights. Yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> I am I am out doing Taylor Swift in my carbon emissions reduction. Sophia, what do you got? So totally unrelated to medicine, we will be receiving or accepting or welcoming an au pair in our tiny, tiny 2200 square foot home on Thursday. But we're really excited. I don't know From if you where? can- She's from Argentina. And uh, if you can see, this is my basement. And this is because we've had to move two of our children into one bedroom to clear out another bedroom. Now everything is in our basement. And we don't, we don't even know where this stuff goes. Like we don't have a space for this. But I'm excited. Hopefully uh, I can have date night and hopefully I can exercise. And if I can have those two things, I'm going to be happy in life. Nine, what do you got? So I uh, grew up in New York uh, and I lived next door to Mike Torres. And so I I grew up a huge Yankees fan. I'm still a a really big Yankees fan. And so recently I've been watching The Captain, which is a docuseries uh, on Derek Jeter that's on ESPN along the same vein as The Last Dance and Man in the Mirror. 
And what's happened though is it's brought up the both the most amazing moments I've ever witnessed as a fan, but also the most excruciating moments I've ever had as a sports fan. So really, really well done documentary uh, and really fun to watch and kind of think about, you know, my childhood and growing up and, and, you know, seeing his career play out and the Yankees dynasty, both the rise and kind of the fall of that. Uh, and, you know, seeing the really painful moments of the 2001 World Series and then the 2004 uh, ALCS. Well, Becky, you got something for us? I know. I've been racking my brain trying to think of something. But uh, my wife and I, my wife wanted me to, she wanted to set up a date night. So I'm going to go see Nope. I was trying to pick a movie and I feel like I saw a lot of articles. I'm not really into horror films, but I guess Jordan Peele's kind of different. And so curious to see if it'll live up to what a lot of film critics have said. Cool. Sadia, you got something? I've been trying to understand if the fact that nobody in my family has had COVID makes us odd or that we just ignore our symptoms or that saying this out loud will mean that tomorrow I will be testing positive or my six-year-old or four-year-old will, but I'd be curious to get some antibody testing. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have we've a- also avoided COVID, we think, but, and we've tested all the time with a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So who As knows? As have we. How many known positives are on this podcast? Joel had it. Just I me, had and, it. Uh, me and Joel. Nice. What about Josh? This no, is a I, weird a group of people. A couple of family members who've had it, but I have not. You're with it yet. a bunch of nephrologists. That's that's weird people. You just <laughs> yeah, actually, my husband is far more conservative than I am. Like if 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 I had anything to do with it, I'd be at some outdoor music festival and just partying away. But my husband is far more conservative than me. So. I'm watching this series. It's season, season three of For All Mankind, which is a re-envisioning of the space race where um, the Russians make it to the moon first, which creates an incredible passion for space because the Americans lost the race, which it kind of ended the space race. And um, and it's it's Ron Moore who did the did a bunch of the Star Trek Next Generation and did uh, First Contact, the movie, and also did the Battlestar Galactica reboot. And I think it's phenomenal, and I am loving it. So a high, a high recommendation for all mankind on Apple+. Plus. I've been holding off on watching that for date night. I would. Have you watched the first two seasons, or are you going to start from, from, from scratch? From scratch. I would recommend it. It is very good. It's a lot better than Ozark for date night. That's not as fun. <laughs> so, Sophia, for date night, you like have a babysitter upstairs, and you go to your basement well we haven't actually done yeah and okay. watch tv we haven't actually had day night <laughs> in a really long yeah, time we to. usually go out to dinner <laughs> was, you're calling out the fact that it wasn't the most realistic statement but <laughs> i'll edit you out <laughs> I mean, oh my god you could do that for the whole podcast <laughs> honestly okay. i would consider date night just being able to be by myself so you can do whatever you want sophia <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. 